Uh, it's a great privilege to be here with you, um, to open God's word with you, uh, all the way from Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, the text we're considering this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 25. Um, as you know from the reading, it's quite long, so I don't plan to uh, cover every particular verse, um, but we will uh, be looking at the central message of the chapter. So I hope that by the end of our time together, we can uh, have a firm takeaway as to what God is trying to communicate to us in his uh, word. Uh, so let's pray. I'll pray for us really quick, and then we'll begin. Almighty God and Father, we approach you in the name of Jesus Christ and ask for help this morning. Lord, we need your life-giving spirit to make your word clear to us. We need your spirit, Lord, to enliven and soften our hearts that we may believe your word, trust your word, and live out your word. Therefore, gracious Father, pour out your spirit this morning, we pray, that we might be strengthened, encouraged, helped, and built up according to your word and for your glory, that we might heed this text and learn to be still and wait for your salvation. It is in Christ's name we ask this, and for his sake, amen. So growing up, uh, one of the most moving and exciting movies uh, that I ever watched was uh, the animated film, The Prince of Egypt. Uh, other than Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, I had never seen on television such a vivid display of the Exodus before. Um, and I distinctly remember uh, that at one of the most climactic scenes, uh, when the Israelite slaves were finally being uh, liberated from Egypt when God had uh, conducted the final Passover plague. And at that moment, Zipporah um, and Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, began to sing. They break out into song. Um, and as they sing, uh, they sing this song, um, and the song would eventually be recorded by Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey and go on to win the 1999 Academy Award for uh, Best Original Song in a Film. Um, the song is called When You Believe, and one of the lyrics goes like this. There can be miracles when you believe. Though hope is frail, it's hard to kill. Who knows what miracles you can achieve? When you believe, somehow you will. You will when you believe. Now, it wasn't until years later that I actually realized how self-centered these lyrics are uh, nowhere in the song is God actually referenced as the one who delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Um, and in this particular lyric, the emphasis is not on the God who miraculously delivers you, but on you who miraculously deliver yourself when you believe. Right? In a way, the writers of this song had managed to turn one of the greatest biblical displays of God's power to deliver into a display of human triumph and self-deliverance. Now, whether you agree with my interpretation of this song or not, uh, it remains true that the desire for self-deliverance is a pervasive, sinful human desire that has affected all of us from the very beginning of time. Whether it was Adam and Eve when they desired to save themselves from shame by clothing themselves with fig leaves, or whether it's um, any one of us who seek to save ourselves from pain or loneliness or danger or shame by sinfully taking the matter into our own hands rather than, rather than obediently waiting on God. Self-deliverance and self-salvation is thoroughly anti-Christian. 
but thoroughly mainstream in our culture today. However, not only is self-deliverance anti-Christian, it's anti-wisdom, and that's what we'll see in this text. It's anti-wisdom. It is utterly foolish to seek to save yourself. For a weak, finite creature to seek to save themselves when there is an omnipotent almighty God who is sovereign over all things. David, for his part, seems to understand this in many parts of 1 Samuel, but in this particular chapter, we see him forget this wisdom until he's reminded of it by Abigail. She reminds David that the Lord's anointed king must wait for God to deliver him rather than seek to deliver himself. This is Abigail's wisdom, which David eventually heeds to his own benefit. And so in this sermon, I want to take us through the details of the story. Um, Again, it's a long story, so we're going to kind of go through it. Uh, But as we go through it, I want us to understand Abigail's wisdom more clearly. So we're going to look at the different details of the story, but we're going to focus most of our attention on Abigail's wisdom. And as I point you to Abigail's wisdom, I also want to show you two things uh, eventually in the sermon. One, how Jesus Christ embodies Abigail's wisdom as our representative. And then two, how Christ calls us to embody this wisdom as his people. Right? So Christ embodies the wisdom that David heeds in this chapter, and Christ calls us to walk in this wisdom. Christ waited for the salvation of God rather than seeking to save himself. We also ought to do that, and we can because Christ did so, and we're going to see that hopefully in this text. So let's consider the account before us. We'll consider the story itself in four parts. David's dilemma in verses 1 through 8, Nabal's folly in verses 9 through 17, Abigail's wisdom in verses 18 through 35, and the Lord's deliverance in verses 36 through 43. That's David's dilemma, Nabal's folly, Abigail's wisdom, and the Lord's deliverance. So first, let's consider David's dilemma in verses 1 through 8. Look with me starting at verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now at this point in the book of 1 Samuel, David has been fleeing from Saul for a long time. Uh, Saul, who was once anointed by God to be the king of Israel, had rebelled against God, and so God had rejected him. Um, He rejected Saul, and and instead of uh, choosing Saul, he therefore chose David. He privately anointed David through the prophet Samuel to be the future king. But after David, so David, he's anointed as a youth. He eventually, uh, as you may know, kills Goliath, right? When Goliath is seeking to challenge all of Israel. And when he does that, he rises to prominence. And Saul, not knowing that David is meant to replace him, Saul invites David into his own courts, into his royal courts. But as he's invited into his royal courts, David starts to rise up. And it's clear that God is with him. And it becomes even more clear that actually David is the future king. Not, Sam, not, not Saul, or not Saul's son either. Um, so in jealousy, Saul then begins to want to kill David. He starts to harass him, and then not just harass him, but literally try to murder David. So David has to run away and flee into the wilderness. And this jealous, powerful, wicked king relentlessly pursues David. Now in the previous chapter, we see that David actually had the opportunity to kill Saul, 
but instead he spared Saul's life. Um, still, he doesn't trust Saul, so he remains fortified in a stronghold with his men. But I want to point this out because it's very ironic that in that chapter, David sought to show mercy to the one who was trying to kill him. In this chapter, it seems like he's not going to do that. Um, but that's the context. Now, in verse 1, we see the death of Samuel. Now, with his death, David realizes that Saul's rage will likely be unrestrained now, right? Samuel had been used by, God had used Samuel to restrain Saul and protect David in the past. But now that Samuel's dead, it's likely that David is more uh, vulnerable. So here's his dilemma. He can stay in this fortified place where he is, um, or he can flee into the wilderness to, to escape Saul. But if he flees into the wilderness, he'll have less supplies. It's the wilderness, right? It's, it's bare. There's not access to uh, food and, and to sustenance there. So how does he respond to this dilemma? Well, he decides to go into the wilderness of Paran with his band of 600 warriors, 600 men. Now, you can imagine the very difficult conditions of such a situation, right? David and 600 mighty men are in utter wilderness and are therefore in great need of food and sustenance. So, when they arrive in the wilderness, they encounter a multitude of shepherds who are overseeing a vast flock of sheep in the wilderness. And these shepherds belong, this, these shepherds in the flock belong to a very wealthy man named Nabal. And his wife's name is Abigail. We see the description of Nabal and Abigail in verses 2 through 3. So let's look at that really quick. Verse 2. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So in verses 2 and 3, we get details concerning uh, Abigail and Nabal. And from the very beginning, we see this is not a good match, right? They're, they're actually foils to one another, like opposites, right? You see Abigail, she's a beautiful, discerning woman, while Nabal is harsh and badly behaved. Um, and actually, his name is Nabal. And another way of translating Nabal in Hebrew is literally fool. <laughs> so Nabal is, his name means fool. He's harsh and badly behaved. And he's married to a wise and beautiful woman who's very discerning. Um, and that word for hard can also mean stubborn. But we'll look at what that, the, you know, that will become more clear as we look at the rest of the text. So we get these descriptions at this point in the text. But they... They'll make more sense as we see what happens next. Now, in the first verses, we learn that when David and his men had encountered Nabal's shepherds and flock in the wilderness, they decided to be a source of protection for the shepherds, right? The shepherds are vulnerable in the wilderness. David and his men are also vulnerable in terms of not having supplies. And there's a lot of flock here that perhaps they could eat. But instead of attacking the shepherds, they decide to be a source of protection and protect Nabal's flock and the shepherds who existed in the wilderness, where there's a ton of thieves and robbers, it was a very dangerous context. And so this was a very honorable and kind thing for David to do while he's facing his own crisis, fleeing from Saul. Um, and this action of David and his men establishes the basis for his request of food from Nabal, who was exceedingly wealthy. So David sends 10 of his young soldiers 
uh, young men, like his young men, David's young men, the phrase young men just means soldiers, warriors, right? So he sends 10 of his young soldiers to deliver this request to Nabal, and he is essentially asking for a generous tribute or payment for the services that David had rendered, right? David had protected his flock, and David's saying, hey, could we have some supplies? We're in the wilderness, we're vulnerable, and you're very wealthy. Not only that, but David makes this request of Nabal during the sheep shearing festival. Now, sheep shearing is the practice of removing the wool from one's sheep in order to keep them cool in the summer and also to reduce the risk of parasitic infestation and disease. The wool was then used for clothing. So an abundance of sheep during sheep shearing actually meant an abundance of clothing for your household. So it was a sign of great wealth to be able to shear that many sheep. Um, and the time of shearing was a celebratory one, right? It's a time of celebrating the abundance that God has given. Um, it's also a time of feasting and hospitality during ancient Israel. So the timing of David's request makes it even more understandable. It's a time of feasting and hospitality for the wealthy Nabal. And so Nabal, or David, is asking for uh, some generosity from Nabal. Now, Nabal's response to David is shocking, very shocking. It might not be too shocking given the description we already have of Nabal. But let's move to consider that in the second part of the story, Nabal's folly in verses 9 through 17. In these verses, we see Nabal's response to David's request for food in verse 10. Look with me there as I read it. This is Nabal when he's responding. He says, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to them who come from I do not know where? And so let's notice three things about Nabal's response. First, Nabal rejects David's request for food, right? This very wealthy man rejects generosity in this this instance. But secondly, not only does he reject the request, He does so with contempt, right? He insults David, as one commentator puts it. And thirdly, he rejects David as the Lord's anointed, as the future king of Israel. Now that last point I want to show you, it may not be as clear, but he's essentially rejecting David as the future king. So in his response, Nabal not only rejects the established customs of the time in which such an act of spontaneous kindness by David's men would have been gladly repaid, but he insults David with the question, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, Nabal clearly knows who David is since we see later that his wife has a detailed understanding of David's claim to the throne. And additionally, David never spoke of his father Jesse. So when he says, who is the son of Jesse, it's ironic. He knows who he is, uh, but he's ironically trying to demean David and his lineage, right? He, he comes from a, a, a nobodies, right? His, his, his father is a nobody. So he's on the side of Saul in this instance. He reveals himself to be on Saul's side and therefore an enemy of David and his future kingship. He could even be seen as a future threat to David, given his contempt to David and his future kingship. Therefore, Nabal's behavior is wicked. But um, we, we see this because Nabal rejects God's anointed one and his men because he's on the run. 
David's a fugitive who has not yet ascended to the throne. So he essentially is kicking the king while he's down, right? This is a wicked thing. But it's not only a wicked thing, it's a foolish thing. And what do we mean by foolish? Well, it's foolish in that he does not look at the consequences of his actions. It's wicked that, in that he returns David's kindness with evil and rejects the Lord's future king. But it's foolish in that he does this thing without thought of the consequences. Consider Proverbs chapter 17, verse 13, right? It says, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Even more, we see that Nabal's insult sparks David's immediate rage in verse 13, so that David prepares 400 of his men to attack Nabal and all of his household. Nabal doesn't even take into account the risk to his own well-being in insulting this king with 600 warriors at his disposal. This is the folly of sin, right? We boldly pursue a godless life while being completely blinded to the consequences of our actions. However, while Nabal's foolish act is one thing, his foolish character is another. Consider what Nabal's warriors say to Abigail's wife in verse 17. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, as they're speaking to Abigail. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. So they had heard that David was planning an attack. And they're saying harm is coming. But what do they say after that about Nabal? They say, he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Now the term worthless man in scripture is not denying that he's made in the image of God. Right? It's a common description of an ill-natured person or someone who is completely without virtue. Uh, here the term harkens back to the earlier description of, of him in verse 3 as harsh and badly behaved. The word harsh, however, can be translated hard or stubborn. This stubbornness, this stubbornness lies at the root of Nabal's foolish nature. Not only has he made a foolish decision, but he is someone who cannot be spoken to about his foolish decision. Proverbs 12.15 captures this well when it says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now think, think about this for a moment. Both David and Nabal are actually making foolish decisions right now. Nabal is insulting and opposing God's future king, and God's future king is making the rash decision to murder Nabal and his entire household for an insult. Both of these men are thinking and acting foolishly. However, What's the difference between Nabal and David? One man cannot even be spoken to or convinced of the error of his ways, while the other man, though intending to act foolishly, will be willing to heed godly advice and counsel, and not just from anyone, but from a woman, despite the fact that women at that time would have been looked down on as sources of wisdom and counsel. So David will listen. Nabal can't even be spoken to. So consider this in your own life, whether you're living, perhaps, as a fool or as a wise person. All of us sin. All of us do foolish things. However, are we willing to be convinced that what we are doing is wrong and foolish, or are we wise in our own eyes? Think about your own life. When is the last time someone was able to convince you that you were wrong for something you sincerely believed? When was the last time you allowed someone to open your eyes to your own sin. 
Or are you so stubborn that no one can tell you or even would want to try and tell you about your errors and your sin? I would therefore exhort you this morning with the authority of God's word to always keep your heart and your ears open to godly advice, to godly counsel, to wise correction. Never let yourself descend to the point of sinful stubbornness because it only leads to destruction and tragedy. The Baal's men knew him to be a stubborn man so that no one could talk with him. What's terrifying about this is that Nabal's stubbornness prevented anyone from coming to him so that he might have the opportunity to repent. They didn't even want to talk to him. In the same way, there can be a point where we become so hardened, so wise in our own sight, that those who could help us and give us the insight we need will not even have a desire to speak with us. They don't think it's worth it. In fact, they're even commanded by God to not cast the pearls of truth before swine. So the folly of stubbornness can actually cut us off from life-saving counsel. So strive for teachability and run away from the destruction of folly. Sometimes you don't even know that you're stubborn, right? So reflect on that. This is Nabal's fate and his folly. Now, it contrasts, though, with Abigail, Abigail's wisdom. So let's now consider this wise and discerning woman, Abigail, and the nature of her wise counsel in the third part of the story. It's in this wisdom and counsel which Abigail gives David that we come to the central core message of the chapter. Now, tensions are red hot right now. David is seething with rage and is prepared to slaughter Nabal and his household for the insult, for the rejection of his kingship. Abigail, however, once she hears about all of this, immediately prepares a great presentation of food and brings it herself to David risking her very life to prevent him from carrying out his act of vengeance upon Nabal. However, why would she do this? Right? She's never met David before. What would give her such boldness to go and present herself to a man with 400 warriors who are angry and coming to kill her husband and her household? She believed that if she came and met him and apologized, on Nabal's behalf, that somehow she, by herself, would cool David's anger and prevent his 400 men from destroying Nabal and his household. Where does this boldness come from? It comes from trust in the promises of God. That's where her strength came from. Look with me at her words in verse 30. She says, And when the Lord has done to my Lord, speaking to David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail knew that because God had promised it through the prophet Samuel that David would indeed be the future king of Israel. She knew that he would be exalted by the Lord and that his enemies would be destroyed by the Lord. And so if this was the case, then David must not seize power by delivering himself through vengeance. Rather, he would need to trust the Lord to exalt him. He would need to trust the Lord to vindicate him. 
Abigail believed that David was the future king because God had said it. And she understood that those whom the Lord exalts are those who trust in him and not in themselves for deliverance. She knew that the Lord's anointed king, and this is the key point, must wait on God for deliverance rather than seeking to deliver himself. And if this was the case, she trusted the Lord would use her to restrain David from carrying out his rash decision. Incredible faith. This is Abigail's wisdom, and David, upon hearing it, decided to heed her words and relents from pursuing vengeance on Nabal and disqualifying himself to be the Lord's king. David praises Abigail for her wisdom and discretion and for being used by God to, for, to restrain, uh, restrain him from doing two things in particular. Look with me at verse 33. There are two things that David is not going to do because of what Abigail said. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. These two things blood guilt, and working salvation with my own hand are related for David as a means to an end. Blood guilt meaning murder, right? Shedding blood without cause and working salvation with his own hand. Now, David intended to vindicate and save himself through murder, and this would disqualify him from kingship. Nabal was not actively warring against David's life. Nabal, rather, Nabal had insulted David and exposed himself as a future threat. So by killing Nabal and his household, David thought that by, he would vindicate himself and eliminate a future threat and rebel against his kingship. Right? So he's trying to maneuver, not consulting the Lord, not looking to what the Lord would have to say, and say, I'm going to seize power. I'm going to stamp out this guy who is against me. I'm going to work salvation by my own hand. That's what that phrase is referring to. He would be seeking a good goal through unauthorized means. He would be seeking to deliver himself sinfully without consulting God, rather than waiting on God to deliver and secure him. And so, David, David, the Lord's anointed, needed to be reminded by the wise Abigail to not seek salvation by his own hand. However, David would one day have a descendant, a descendant who would inherit his throne, his kingdom. And this descendant would be the anointed king of God's people. This descendant would be anointed as the royal son of God at his baptism. He would be relentlessly harassed, insulted, and hunted down by the elders and the leaders of Israel. These leaders would then illegally arrest him in the dark of night and put him on trial for crimes he did not commit. They would spit on him. They would insult him. They would reject his claim to be the son of God, the king of Israel. However, this descendant would not need to be reminded of Abigail's wisdom, but he would rather embody that wisdom as our savior. This is the God-man Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. Let's read about his embodiment of this wisdom in Matthew chapter 26. So please turn there with me now. Uh, we'll begin at verse 47. And as we read it, consider this king, consider this man, this God-man, who doesn't need to be reminded of this wisdom, but embodies it. 
and even more, he would have further reason to seek an insult. David is being insulted as a sinful man who God had chosen to be king. Jesus is being insulted as a sinless, perfect man who is God incarnate. And what does does Christ do when he's insulted, when he's arrested? Starting at verse 47 in chapter 26. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him and his sword. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now move down to verse 62 as we look at Jesus' trial. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now here we see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one anointed by God to not only be the King of Israel, but to be the Lord of all things in heaven and earth. We see this glorious King willingly submitting himself to an unlawful arrest and to insults by the Jewish leaders who should have been worshiping him. And before these insults, when he's being arrested, he made the famous statement that those who live by the sword shall die by the sword, shall perish by the sword. What he means here is that those who seek to deliver themselves through violence will be destroyed by violence. And even more broadly, those who seek to to take their deliverance in their own hands will never be delivered. And so we see Jesus trusting and waiting on his father, not Peter's flimsy sword, to deliver him. However, he knew that it was not yet time for God to deliver him because if he he was not betrayed, arrested, and crucified, according to Jesus, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? The scriptures would not be fulfilled. And what do the scriptures say? What does he want to be fulfilled in the scriptures? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.3, It was according to the scriptures that Christ died for our sins. If Christ had not willingly submitted himself to these insults, 
Christ would have never died for our sins and we would still be in our sins. The only path to deliverance and vindication for Jesus was the path of the cross of Christ. The path of bearing God's wrath for the sins of God's people. This is because all of us have sinned and rebelled against a holy God. We have all committed treason against our Creator. None of us have loved Him with our whole heart. None of us have loved our neighbor as ourself perpetually. We have rejected God by breaking His commandments, and we therefore deserve the penalty for such rebellion, the penalty of death, the penalty of hell. This is what we deserve. But God, in His great mercy, sent his son to voluntarily pay for the infinite debt accrued by our sin by dying in our place on the cross and bearing the full weight of God's wrath, as we sang earlier, directed toward us so that we might escape it. Christ stood in our place. He took the wrath headed our way so that we can go free and know him and love. He was then buried and raised from the dead on the third day by God, who then delivered him from death and vindicated him from all the insults he received in his life by exalting him to his right hand and giving him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The tongues that insulted him, the tongues that curse him, the tongues that even right now insult Christ and curse Christ will one day say, you are the Christ. Now, because Christ did not seek deliverance by his own hand, but was instead obedient to the point of death on a cross, now you today can trust in him and receive freedom from the guilt and power of sin. You can receive a future with him and an eternal kingdom of glory because of what he's done. This is the gospel of God. And because Jesus Christ trusted his Father for ultimate deliverance, you today can trust in Jesus Christ for ultimate deliverance. This Jesus has become Lord of all creation. He is the Son of David and the Son of God, and he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all of us who turn from our sins and trust alone in him to be Savior, to be our King. So I urge you this morning, if you've not done so, trust in this all-glorious King, this all-wise King, if you'd like to learn more about what that means, uh, ask me or, or one of the pastors or any of the members here after the service. We'd all love to speak with you about the eternal life that Jesus Christ offers. Jesus embodies Abigail's wisdom as our representative before God. He, in his human nature, perfectly trusted in and waited on the Father, as all of us should do. Despite Satan's temptations, he never sought to sinfully take matters into his own hand. He didn't save himself from hunger in the wilderness by turning the stones into bread. He didn't save himself from an arrest by killing the, the, the soldiers with the sword or by calling down 12,000 angels from heaven to stop them. And he didn't save himself on the cross when they were jeering at him, saying over and over again through Satan's temptations, save yourself, save yourself. You saved others, why can't you save yourself? Come down from the cross. Christ did not save himself. Christ entrusted himself to the Father. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's saying, I entrust myself to you, Father. 
And that's what he did to his dying breath. These are all things that Satan and other people tempted him to do, to save himself. But Christ refused, and he waited for God's salvation. And God's salvation was glorious. God raised him from the dead and delivered him from all the hunger he had, from all the shame he had, from all suffering, and exalted him to his right hand. However, the wisdom of waiting on God's salvation is not only something Jesus did and embodied, but it's something he calls us to do. He invites us to do, right? It's not just a command. He does command it, but it's, a, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to be wise and not foolish. And so I ask you this morning, are you waiting on God and trusting him for deliverance? Or are you seeking to deliver yourself by your own hand? Are you seeking to save yourself, for example, from guilt by trying to earn forgiveness through your good works? Are you trying to erase your past failure and sin with your present faithfulness and your zeal? Well, know that this itself is the height of foolishness. You can never deliver yourself from the guilt of sin. You can never erase the stain of your rebellion against God or the pain and hurt you've caused other image bearers, other people. But there is one who can erase this guilt. There is one who can restore all things in your life and make all things right. It is Jesus Christ by the power of his blood. Jesus, the one whose very name means Yahweh is salvation. The Lord saves. However, there remain many other ways that we can try to seek salvation by our own hand. For instance, are you trying to save yourself from shame or from an insult by plotting revenge against someone else right now? Maybe that revenge involves subtle retaliation of withholding kindness from them, right? You say you forgive, but you don't forget. But maybe that means that you're going to try to punish them subtly. Or maybe you're trying to uh, enact revenge by slandering them or gossiping about them, or harboring judgmental thoughts against them in your heart. Maybe it simply involves living in unforgiveness. If this is you, hear the words of the Lord this morning from Paul in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you trying to save yourself, for instance, from, from loneliness this morning, from emptiness and pain by indulging in drunkenness or by engaging in hookups or by getting high or by watching pornography? Know that these sins will not deliver you from your pain they will only lead to more emptiness and more pain, and if you do not repent, eternal death. There are so many ways that we can seek to deliver ourselves instead of waiting upon the Lord. And I, I'd encourage you to think about this and maybe even talk about it with someone else over lunch today. What are ways that you are most tempted to try and deliver yourself from a hard situation rather than consulting, obeying, and trusting and waiting on God to deliver? Sin never keeps his promise to deliver us. And every time we neglect God to try and solve our problems, we will always come to regret it. If this is you this morning. Look instead to Christ, who has promised that he will never leave or forsake you. He will never leave or forsake those who come to him. Rather than seeking to find some escape on your own, by your own hand, be still 
and wait for God's salvation. I can assure you that his salvation and deliverance, if you entrust yourself to him, will far surpass anything that you could work by yourself. This is shown in the closing of our passage, which we'll look briefly at this morning, the Lord's salvation. So we see this after Abigail leaves David and tells Nabal about all that happened. Nabal is feasting and he's very drunk when Abigail first gets back from her encounter with David. So she waits to tell him in the morning when uh, he's a little more sober. And when she tells him, something shocking happens. It says that his heart died within him and he became as a stone in verse 37. This very likely refers to some sort of heart attack or stroke, right? He, he was attacked, perhaps had a heart attack, and whatever happened, it caused him to be still. He couldn't, that, the mouth that cursed David could not speak. And it was for, for 10 days. And then after that, God struck him dead. And after this, David ends up marrying Nabal's widow and the wise and discerning Abigail. So this act of deliverance and vindication by God was much greater than anything David could have done himself. Rather than simply dying, David's enemy suffers 10 days of silence and shame before being struck down by God. This occurs apart from David having to sin by spilling his blood or expensing any effort at all. David does nothing. He trusts the Lord for his salvation. And what does this do? This foreshadows God's deliverance of David from Saul, the real enemy of this story, of this saga, right? Eventually, Saul would die by his own sword on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 30. He who lived by the sword, Saul, would indeed die by the sword, his own sword. Likewise, the father delivered Christ from all his oppressors and from death itself, as he did David, in a glorious salvation of power and joy at his right hand. And likewise, for all of you who trust in Jesus and God, God will deliver you from every pain and every tear. He will deliver you from all loneliness and from all tragedy and from all your shame. And he will silence and put to shame your greatest enemies, Satan and death. When the Lord of glory descends from heaven and raises you, to his right hand to live in the fullness of joy forever and ever. This is the salvation God offers you. Be still, therefore, and trust in this Lord to save you and flee all forms of self-salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to trust in you and not ourselves to be our mighty fortress this morning. Help us to trust in your strength and not our own to deliver us from all of our enemies and bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. We pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.